Hello, I'm Anthony Johnston, and you're listening to Writing and Breathing, a show where I chat with fellow authors of all kinds about why, how, and what we write. And my guest today is the novelist and critic, Maya Rodell. Maya, welcome to the show. Hi, it's so lovely to be chatting with you. So uh, for listeners who aren't familiar with you or your work, tell us you know, who you are and what you do. My name is Maya. I write romance novels. Yes, those books. And I've been doing this for about more than 15 years, and I've written about 20-some books. Um, so I've been doing this long enough, and I've written enough books that I can't even count them anymore. Uh, brilliant. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's why I wanted to get you and writers like you on this show, is because you've written so much. You're so prolific. And I mentioned Critic as well, because you also wrote, in addition to writing romance novels, you also wrote uh, Dangerous Books for Girls, the book where you effectively stand up for the romance genre. Exactly. The book is um, subtitled The Bad Reputation of Romance Novels Explained, but it's also this uh, justification for why these books are actually extremely smart and powerful. And it's one of my favorite subjects to talk about. Um, But for the point of this show, this means I've written both nonfiction and fiction. And I also lately have been reviewing romance novels for NPR books. So I've been training my eye to look at um, how genre fiction works successfully mm. or not as a reviewer, as well as a writer. Well, and I should say for listeners who are interested in that side of things to go and have a listen to the episode of Unjustly Maligned, my old podcast that you did with me, which I think yes. was episode 23, something like that. Um, it's the best episode. We got into... <laughs> It is a very good episode. Very good episode. But yeah, where we got into exactly that about, you know, what is, why the romance genre is unjustly maligned, which Mm -hmm. I found fascinating, as I said at the time, you know, just purely from a reading and genre standpoint, I was one of those people who had dismissed the romance genre and you completely turned me around. Um, It was, uh, yeah, it was great. Awesome. So 15 years 20 plus books. So you're writing more than one book a year. Yes. Uh, which means, you know, you, you've got to be writing most of the time, I would think. So are you writing, are you working on a book at the moment? This is the rare moment where I am not working on a book. I am usually always working on a novel or promoting a book, often at the same time. Well, and that's the thing that a lot of people people who aren't yet sort of in the business don't quite realize is that you're often you're uh promoting a new book that's out yeah while also going through the editorial process of your next book to come out while also writing the book after that yeah that's probably going to come out so it's not unusual for novelists especially to be work even though people only see one novel at a time it's not unusual for us to be working on several books at once in different ways. Exactly. And let's be clear, this is an outstanding problem to have. It means you're a working writer um, and you have some traction. So um, I'm not complaining when I say um, it can be really grueling um, to be creative all morning and then to switch gears and go into complete promo mode. Okay. So, I mean, just focusing on the craft for a moment, uh, do you, cause I actually, I do a similar thing, but I find that I have 
all my sort of creative energy in the morning, like pretty much straight after I wake up, I start writing and I get all of that out. And then after lunchtime, when things start to slow down a bit and, you know, my energy levels are going to start dipping, I actually am glad that I'm then doing, yeah, editorial revisions or online promotion or whatever, rather than trying to write through creatively that is right through the entire day are you saying would you prefer to be able to do that i i can't i don't have the stamina for it so i'm like you i love the mornings i'm actually famous among my friends for getting up at like five in the morning and that's when i do my best writing i just there's no distractions um either online or in the house and i'm refreshed and recharged. So I can just go. Also, I have massive amounts of coffee. Um, so (laughs) I can write through the morning. So I'll get like an hour or two before everyone in my house gets up and then a little break when they get out of here and a few more hours. But by midday, I'm just, your brain's fried. Um, you need to kind of like, well, it is if you've been spending all morning writing intensively creating yeah yeah and so i definitely need to take a break sometimes if i'm under deadline what i'll do is i'll take a nap and wake up and have more coffee and kind of psych myself into thinking it's another morning but usually i um switch to all the social media and the emails and stuff that doesn't take so much heart and soul yeah you can only fool your your body and your brain that way a certain uh, for a certain length of time really can't you you can do it once or twice you can get away with it yeah but it's not something that you can really do on a regular basis because it just becomes the new normal exactly and and you're gonna burn out sooner or rather you're gonna burn out eventually um writing does demand breaks um i will say my favorite favorite thing to do and it rarely happens is i go away on a writing retreat so i book two days two and a half and I get up and write and there's room service coffee and I can just keep going. And with someone bringing me meals and cleaning my space, um, I can just go, 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 go. And then, you know, by four o'clock I switch to wine and get a few more hours that way. And <laughs> I'll just cram it all into two days and I can get like 10 to 20,000 words done that way. Wow. But then I'm exhausted for the next few days. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, that's an that's an amazing word count, even for that scenario to achieve in a couple of days. But yeah, as you say, it's not surprising that you can't keep that up no. for very long. You then need to, as you say, take a break and just, well, collapse and sleep for a week, I imagine. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> so I don't know, like, I don't know that that's really, you get any more in the long run than if you just did 2,000, 3,000 words a day at a steadier pace. but. Yeah. I have always been envious of these writers who go off to a cabin somewhere and just lock themselves away from civilization for three months and then emerge with a fully formed manuscript. I mean, I'm sure that's not, I'm sure that in itself is romanticizing the the reality of yeah. it, but still it does sound very, very appealing. To same, me. same. But obviously in the modern era, Impossible. it's so difficult to cut yourself from off from everything. Exactly. Yeah. Um, 5 a.m. Yeah. That's that's crazy. I mean, I get up, you know, in the morning and start working, but not at 5 a.m. That's good. Is there a... I had a dog. This is how it started. I had a puppy 
And she would cry in her crate and ask me, you know, demand that I take her out. Um, so I did because I'm not a monster. And then it was like five thirty, six o'clock and I'm up. I've been I put clothes on. I went outside. Um, cause I live in New York, so you have to chaperone the dog outside. And then I was like, well, I might as well write coffee or make coffee. And then while I'm up drinking coffee, like, you know, your brain starts working. So, um, I got in the habit that way. So having a dog has been one of the best things I think for me as a writer, she put me on this schedule Mm -hmm. of getting up and going out and waking up. And then, um, she also gave me an excuse to get out of the house, um, talk to humans, get dressed, get showered. So, um, I didn't fall into this, you know, completely into the writing cave and get lost to civilization and humanity. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of what you might term between dogs. Yeah. Um, but I still get up at the same time as I used to, to walk my dogs because for years that was the habit I had. Um, and I'm sure we'll get another dog again, you know, and I'll get back into that same routine. But you're right that once you've been out of the house, once you've put clothes on and gone outside, it is quite difficult to then uh, go back to bed, come back home and just go back to bed. Yeah, especially, I mean, specifically for, a, I mean, I suppose for anyone, but specifically for a creator, because as soon as you wake up, you start thinking about whatever you're working on at mm-hmm. the moment. And you want to get it down and you, you know, it does kind of give you the, the urge, the itch to start working for the day. Or it does for me anyway. Exactly. And I find walking the dog is a great time for story ideas because you're just kind of like plodding along and not talking (laughs) to anyone. And um, so then I get the ideas and I come back in and I write. So what is your, is that your typical day then? You get up, take the dog out, come back, work until lunchtime have lunch and then, you know, get to editorial stuff or promotion. Yeah. So I am also like you between dogs. Um, but the habits are there because I, you know, 15 years, um, I've had it. Exactly. So, um, I get up early. I have coffee. I write, um, I do, I will confess to struggling with checking my email in the New York times first thing as I kind of warm up. Um, that makes me very sad about myself that I do that. Um, and then people wake up in my household and I deal with them and get rid of them. And then I go back to work and work all morning till about lunchtime. Um, these days I like to work out around midday, take my shower, get all dressed and ready. And then I'm like with my afternoon caffeine fix, I do emails and social media and things like that. The thing is, is like, it's so personal for everybody. And the key is like finding those conditions that work for you and then repeating them and structuring your life to make it easier to set these habits. I I talk about this a lot. I actually, I have a book coming out later this year called the organized writer, Mm -hmm. um, which deals with, you know, sort of routines and productivity and processes and stuff. And one of the points I make in that, and that I always make to people talking about this is, your actual routine doesn't have to be the same as mine. You know, it doesn't have right. to be the same as anybody else's, but you have to have a routine because without one, I mean, you know, there probably are great novelists who didn't have a routine, but how prolific were they? And, right. you know, these days, 
it's very rare that you can be a successful writer without putting out work on a regular basis, on a reliably regular basis. There are people who do it, of course, we all know them. But for most of us, for you, for me, for people working in a genre, and not just in novels, really. I mean, you know, it's the same in comic books. It's the same if you're writing screenplays. You need to be able to regularly, reliably produce. And yeah, that requires some kind of routine, regardless of what the details of that routine are. Exactly. Um, one thing I read early, early on is a quote from Tom Robbins, who's probably my favorite novelist. And he said, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but you have to show up at the same time and same place every day. So the muse knows where to find you. And ah. huh. I'm a big believer in like, as a working writer, you don't have time for inspiration to wait for that. Like you just got to get it done. You make it up. It's fiction. Just make it up. Um, but I think there's something to that where when you set the conditions that allow for creativity. So um, just knowing you have that space in your day, I mean, like the time, the stretch of time, um, the physical space, knowing that you're going to be able to have time to create makes you start thinking about what you're going to create. And I think it all works together. I couldn't agree more. Because, yeah, you got to you got the pressure to put out so much work on such a, like you say, reliable basis is tremendous because uh, the audience is insatiable, which is great. Um, People need tons of content to satisfy that, which is great, but it's, it's very demanding and you have to learn how to satisfy it and pace yourself at the same time. Yeah. I I regard the concept of the muse as pretty deadly. You know, I (laughs) I, I really, really dislike that concept, uh, especially in our modern era. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, uh, it always, and I don't recall who said it. I know it's some kind of folksy saying, but that whole thing about, you know, um, what is it? Good luck turns up in overalls and works eight hour days or something like that. (laughs) About the the idea being that you make your own luck by working hard and taking advantage of the opportunities that you find. I absolutely believe in that. And I think, quote unquote, inspiration is kind of the same way. You know, that yes, there are occasional moments where something strikes you genuinely, you know, kind of feeling out of the blue. And you go, oh my God, that's brilliant. I've got to get that down. But those moments are so rare and they generally only happen because you are thinking hard about something and putting that work, the imaginative work into your writing. Exactly. I couldn't agree more with that. So what's your average daily word count? I feel good when I can get 2000 words a day. Um, I love when I can get a thousand words before breakfast. Um, And to the point about the routine and the peak hours, it's like those first 1000 words are the easiest. Um, and then the second might take me a little longer. Um, when I'm really in a groove, I can do three. Um, but again, conditions have to be right. I have to have a clear schedule. I have to know what I'm writing about. And another, a weird thing about me and the way I write is I write in layers. So my first draft of a novel will be entirely dialogue. And I do this so that um, the dialogue carries the story. And it also helps me understand who my characters are, what their personalities are. And 
where my beats are before I have too much dense text to move around that I'm then afraid to cut. Um, so once I have the bones in dialogue, I go back and I layer in the, like he said, she said, and the description and the feeling and all of that. And then I go over again to really tighten it up. Um, but to your question about how much, about word count, it depends which layer I'm in. So I can write dialogue all day, thousands and thousands of words of dialogue that comes very easily to me. And it's fun. Um, getting into description and that third round of like expanding or tightening or whatever um, is harder and slower going. So I've learned when I'm writing a dialogue draft, I'm going to get those 2000 words very easily and have a fun day. When I'm on that third draft or third layer, it's going to be a slog and I'm going to put in a ton of work and maybe have only ended up adding 500 words, but I'll have done a lot of important revision and cutting and editing work. So it depends on where I'm at in the manuscript, but I've learned to understand that about myself and not be hard on myself about it. Which again, I think is a very important point to get across to, especially to aspiring writers that, you know, know what you can do, know what you can achieve and what your limits are and be happy when you, you know, when you hit what is a good day for you? Like for me, it's, I'm very similar to you actually, but kind of upside down, <laughs> if that makes sense. In that I also write in, la- I'd never actually thought of putting it in that, in those words as writing in layers, but I, that's exactly what I do. The, the difference is that I do include uh, all the descriptive stuff, you know, as well as the dialogue. Um, but what I don't do is worry about whether or not it's any good right. in the first draft. I just write right the way through until the end. And then I go back and clean it up and polish it. And I will wind up rewriting large chunks, of course, yeah. uh, and rewriting extra, you know, descriptive dialogue and stuff. But what I'm doing there is cleaning up something that already exists rather than necessarily adding new whole new bricks, right. as it sounds like you're doing. I'm mixing my metaphors terribly here, but you you understand what I'm saying. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think this is one of the, something that experienced writers understand and that I want newbie writers to understand is like, I don't write clean sentences to start. It takes a while to get to a tight chapter or a tight scene. It takes a lot of mess. And so that first draft, mine, yours, everybody's is a hot mess. And so you have to be okay with that. And that's, it's hard. It's hard for some personalities. And it is, I think reaching that point where you can, as you say, be okay with something being pretty bad. And the way <laughs> I do it and the way, the way that, sort of, that I sort of advocate with what I call the zero draft is the golden rule is nobody else will ever see it. Yeah. Nobody else ever sees that draft except me. So it's okay and I, and this is what I'm bearing in mind while I'm writing it. It's okay that it's terrible. It's okay that this might be the most boring scene I've ever written <laughs> or the most turgid dialogue or that things literally don't make sense. That's fine because nobody else will ever see it. Right. And so by the time somebody else does see it, I've had chance to go over it and clean all that up and make things make sense and write better dialogue and so on. Yeah, I am, although I've actually started sharing before and after snippets and screenshots in workshops I do. Oh, wow. That's brave. Well, I can do it because it got pretty. Um, 
and no one's reading it thinking like, this is the best you can do, Maya. Like this is representative of like 15 years of writing. Um, so it's, it's the context, but yeah, you have to, um, no one's going to see it. No one's supposed to see it. And even if they saw it, they'd still probably like, wow, you wrote all those pages. Um, but yeah, you, you have to just not judge yourself on those zero drafts. I like that phrase. Yeah, well, there you go. So I've got layers and you've got zero drafts. Yeah. <laughs> Exchanging ideas. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, let's let's go back a little then. Get away from the uh, the nuts and bolts just for a moment. How did you get started? Like, uh, did you always want to be a writer? How did you become a, a professional writer? And, you know, what do you sort of look back on and realize that those early experiences taught you that you use now? Oh, that's a good question. So I never grew up thinking I was going to be a writer. Um, but I recently found a like third grade story I had written called the princess in the ballroom or the accident in the ballroom, something. Um, and it was like a two page story in like third grade handwriting about like a girl in a pretty dress going to a party and there was drama. And I saw this and I was like, Oh my God, how could I become anything other than a romance novelist? (laughs) (laughs) Was there a duke in it? (laughs) Probably. I didn't know what they were yet, but something like that. Yeah. Um, so I, I thought that was funny when I found that in my papers, but the way I really got started is I was undergrad in college and I was working on a book with my mom and I was like, this whole writing lifestyle suits me because I can, you know, do it at home. I can do it in a cafe. I'm my own boss. I'm at, I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, as long as I get it done, no one cares. Um, Plus I like writing. So I was like, I got to make this work. And someone told me like, Maya, you should be writing romance novels because I love to read them. And it was an agent. And I was like, Linda, will you represent my book, if I finish it, she goes, sure. And I said, I'll have something for you in three months. And because I was young and unemployed and didn't know any better and drank a lot of coffee, I was able to write a draft of a novel in three months. And so I think there's something to be said for all of those elements. Um, I was able, I was young and energized. Um, I was able to do this full time, which is a privilege and a luxury, and I drank a lot of coffee and I didn't know any better. And I just thought I could do it. And I did it. Um, I think I didn't have any fear, which comes at that point from just being naive. Um, so. Right, right. It's as you gain experience that, you, that the fear sets in, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. So um, I did it. And, you know, I then promptly spent the next two years revising that book part-time while doing school and working and other things before it sold. So there is that. And it was probably another year of revisions and such after that. Um, And I think when you read that book now, you can be like, oh, Maya learned to write a novel here. Um, The prologue, which was the last thing I wrote, is so much better and more evocative than the rest of the book. So oh, no. <laughs> it's a great prologue, but you can see like I had been writing for three more years when I wrote the prologue versus the entire novel. So that's really how I got started. And because I write in romance and genre fiction, um, 
when they buy a book, they buy two or three or four at a time. So they bought two books from me. And so then I had to write my second book right away. And I, I knew a little more. Um, and then once these started coming out and I was out of contract, I had really fallen in love with doing it. It had become my community. It had become the work I wanted to do. I'd started like, you know, building a presence for myself in the space and online. And from there, I was like, I just got to make this work. Um, and so far I have. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there's a couple of things I want to pick up on there. First of, first of all, explain writing a book with your mother. Yeah. So this is really um, insane, but we wrote a self-help book together, a mother-daughter self-help book. And, you know, I was 22. So what the hell did I know about anything? Um, so the audacity in that is kind of breathtaking if you think about <laughs> it. Um, so it is long out of print and that's very okay. But it was an amazing experience. Um to learn how to write, to learn how to put together a book proposal, to learn the process of shopping it around and the editorial process and the revision process, um, meeting people. So it was a really fantastic start and a very lucky start. Um, my mom worked in publishing, so that opened doors for us. But I will say, um, between the romance novel I wrote... And the nonfiction book, there was one novel I tried to sell by myself. Um, and 12 out of 12 agents agreed that this was not a sellable book. And I was just thoroughly rejected. So when I tried to strike out on my own, I was like really shot down. But I learned some really great lessons for that. And the reason is I was trying to do this like mashup of chiclet women's fiction, but sort of romance, but sort of paranormal, but also the Odyssey. Like it was too big, too much. And as one agent described to me, there's no shelf at Barnes and Noble for this book. And this was so long ago <laughs> <laughs> that we lived and died by Barnes and Noble shelf space. And so I learned a lot right there of voice is really important, but not enough. You need to learn how to focus your stories and package and position your stories. And, you know, I got the experience of going out with connections and then going out on my own and it's different. I, I do wonder though, given that we, especially in your genre that we are now, you know, we now live in an age of time travel, shape changer, <laughs> medieval, you know, romance, whether you could actually pitch something like that now. <laughs> You know, I wonder if I could, and sometimes I do think of going back to it. Um, and it was based on a short story I wrote for a fiction class, a fiction writing class in college. And it's one of the greatest moments of my life where I, I was a very new writer and I brought this story to class. And you know how fi fiction classes and workshops work, where everyone reads your stories and then it's your night in class. And they say, okay, we're going to read and critique Maya's story now. And so everyone got out and there was this beat of yeah. silence, this long beat of silence in which I died a thousand deaths because it was quiet. No one had anything to say. Every like, Oh my God, they hated it. But then it was a class of eight women and one male teacher. And the women just exploded like, Oh my God, when this happened on page three and this part here, it made me want this. And like the chatter and enthusiasm just, um, it, 
blew me away. And I was like, okay, maybe I can do this. Have I ever hit that reaction again since? Not that I know of. Um, have I been able to expand that story into a novel and sell it and make Reese's Book Club? No. Um, but it gave me this moment of feeling that I could write something that would connect with my peers. And that really sustained me for a long time. Well, that's the sort of thing that will sustain you as well, isn't it? Yeah, there's nothing, there's no greater thrill for a writer than hearing readers react to it in an excited way even if they didn't love it right <laughs> but just having having opinions and strong reactions to it that's that's all you want the last yeah. thing you want is an audience that sits there and goes that oh, was all right i suppose that's right? terrible that, <laughs> that's, that's the worst possible reaction it is it is and i mean we talk about this in romance all the time like a really enthusiastic bad review can be really great for <laughs> sales. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? But sales as well? Well, because if they're like, there was just not enough sex in this book, or there was too much sex in it, you know, someone's going to be like, "That's my, that's my catnip." You hated it, but I ah, love that. Right. So, um, so yeah, the too much sex in this book, and there's a whole group of readers who'll be like, "That's the book for me." Uh, or vice versa, or, you know, yeah. whatever it might be. So you said it took three years to go from that, to, to shape that first book into something that could actually be Something like published. that. Yeah, I'd have it was to, fit to be published. check the dates. So that must have been a, a kind of dose of hard reality for you then, to have started so strong, you know, to, yeah. to have immediately, from doing this book with your mom and then getting an agent and getting sort of, you know, thinking this is it. Great. I've written a book in three months. I've got an agent. My God, uh, you know, <laughs> watch out world. Fortune awaits. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, here I come. And then, and then your agent saying, whoa, slow down there, Hoss. You know, <laughs> yeah. this is, we, we still need to work on this. Um, yeah, that must've been quite a dose, like I say, of reality for you. Very much so. And I remember this winter very, um, keenly because I, had also applied to grad school and I got rejected from grad school and or a book publisher like once a week through a New York, like January, February. And which as you can imagine is a very dark and cold and bitter time. Um, it, I was, I sunk into a massive depression. I'll be honest. Um, it was really, really hard. Um, so it was very much, a dose of reality, but then it's like a first draft, right? You just have to keep slogging and slogging and slogging through it. And then what do you know? One day that spring I got accepted to grad school and sold my first two books like in the same week. Oh, excellent. It just turned around on a dime. So, um, and then suddenly you're walking on air and you feel like the queen of the world. Yeah. Exactly. But I was like, okay, I've earned this feeling. <laughs> so, um, yeah. O overnight success yeah. after three years. Yeah, Ex exactly. <laughs> so what would you, uh, like I say, thinking back to sort of those early days, what do you, what did you take from it that you, you know, use or rely on now? Was it that patience, that realization of, you know, nothing here is going to happen instantly and you've got to as you say keep slogging yeah so what i did during this um deep dark winter of my soul was 
I started another book. I just got up and wrote the book because I didn't know what else to do. And it was the only thing I could do. It was, it was the only thing I knew what I didn't know what else to do. So I just got up and wrote a new book and that sustained me because, you know, I had to take these two characters and get them someplace good. And the only way that was going to happen was if I showed up and typed the words every day. And this is, um, I think like one of the few unpublished manuscripts I've ever done. Um, and I love it so much. I think it's the book where, um, I had learned, I made all my, not all my mistakes, but I worked really hard and made a lot of mistakes writing that first book. And this was the book where I got to go like, okay, I think I know what I'm doing now, or I have a better idea. And, um, I just, I just wrote the book. I wrote my way out to quote Hamilton. I wrote through it. And then, um, the problem is there's two times I've only worked on this book in my life and they've been very, very bad times in my life. So I am now terrified to even open up that document on my computer. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but I remember that book fondly, those characters fondly, there's things I kind of want to take from it and use again in other books. Um, But yeah, just when you have so little control in your real life or you feel powerless, I think writing is a great outlet because you're in charge. It's your fictional world. Those characters do and say what you want. You can, you determine everything. And so it's a, um, it's a good outlet. Yeah. Well, I might, and I've done no research into this, but I might venture to suggest that that's one reason why fanfic is so popular with uh, teenage girls. Oh, yeah. For exactly that reason, to sort of, as you say, have something that you can control. Something that you can control. Um, Also, I mean, teenage girls are always like laughed at and dismissed as silly, but here's a like vibrant community where they're listening to each other. Um, So there's that. There's, oh. I think there's a whole dissertation to be written on teenage girls and fan fiction. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, there's that whole business of uh, AO3 winning the Hugo. What's that? Year. Oh, I'm out of the a- loop. Oh, AO3 is a, it's a huge online fan fiction community. Okay. Um, and the, the community as a whole, for its community, I should, I should emphasize, not for the fiction contents necessarily, but for the community that it had built, was nominated for Hugo last year Sweet. and won. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but you can imagine that, you know, there were some purists with whom that, <laughs> that did not go down too well. <laughs> Don't get me started it, it on was, the purists. <laughs> yeah. But it was a watershed moment. Yeah. It was great. Yeah. And so now you have thousands of uh, people jokingly, they know, you know, but jokingly going around going, I'm a Hugo winner. As <laughs> they I write should. Fanfic on this. <laughs> That's um, awesome. So, Getting back into the weeds then, you, again, you're very prolific. Mm -hmm. You're writing, you know, you may not be writing right this moment, but you are generally always writing something. So do you outline how, and if so, how closely do you stick to it while you're writing? Um, I love this question because um, in Romance Landia, we have a whole thing of, are you a pantser or are you a plotter? Do you fly by the seat of your pants? Oh, you too? Every, every, every genre has that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So, um, 
I always preface everything I say, but with do whatever works for you and take it or leave it. But I am firmly on the plottering side of um, writing. I One book, I wrote a color-coded spreadsheet <laughs> for it. Wow. Uh, I, don't, I don't think I, I'm, a, I'm an outliner as well, but I don't think I've ever gone quite that far. <laughs> yeah, I've only done it one time. I've never gone back to it. Um, I'm a huge fan of writing to the Save the Cat beat sheet. There's the books I do it sell so much better than the ones I don't do it for. Um, I've recently, only later in my career, um, started writing a synopsis before I write the book. And I love it because it forces you to understand your character's motivations. It forces you to find those plot holes very quickly. I'm all about the upfront work so that um, you don't find yourself 250 pages into a Word document and going like, this premise is unsupportable. I can't finish this. These character motivations are all wrong. And you see, you start tinkering and tinkering and tinkering, and it, it doesn't work. There's, th- there's fundamental flaws. The premise is flawed. Um, and it's a really hard space because there's kind of no amount of revisions that will help it, but you're too far gone to scrap it, right? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's painful. So, and I've been there. So, how long are these synopses? Five pages. Oh, okay. Five pages. Okay. So, you're not talking, you know, a massive 30 page treatment or no, something? No, no. It's just like, who is she? What does she want? Who is he? What does he want? Um, what are the key beats where when do they meet when do they have their fight when do they kiss like how does the sex complicate things what's the resolution and the other thing is i only ever outline or write a synopsis to like three quarters of the way because then i run out of ideas i run out of steam i'm really excited to get going and i'm like i'll figure it out later and then i write to three quarters of the way of the book and i'm like i don't know what to do (laughs) i had an outline for this i thought the ending would just come to me. It would like become apparent what needs to happen. Um, and it doesn't. And then I go to my husband, who's my number one reader. And I pour some wine and I ramble about the book. And then he makes all these suggestions. And I say, no, that's terrible. And we have a huge fight. (laughs) And then the next morning I know what to do. (laughs) So (laughs) may or may not be something he said, but. This is why I outline all the way to the end. Um, and like you, I don't do it in torturous detail, but I right. do make sure that I know uh, uh, my essentials are I need to know what the end is, as in, you know, what literally is the sort of overall thing that is happening at the climax and how do we get there? As in, you know, if there's, if it's a, a thriller, then I need to know how that problem will be solved. If it's a murder mystery, then what is the clue that leads the cop or detective or whatever to realize that they're the killer, that sort of thing. As long as I know those two things about the ending, I'm happy, but I need to know them because so much, because of just the sort of books that I write, so much of the groundwork for those elements is laid throughout the rest of the book. And I have tried in the past writing without an outline and I just, I panic. I can't do it. Um, it's so stressful it's yeah i i envy people pantsers just baffle me i don't know how they do it (laughs) 
I, I just look at them with envy and I think, my God, I wish I could do that. But then I know pantsers who look at outliners like us and wish that they could do that, but they don't do it because they would, uh, they feel they get bored Yeah, because they're rewriting the same story two or three times. Whereas to me, like we said about the layered thing, you know, it's, you're not really rewriting the same thing per se. It's just that, yeah, you're adding more detail and more blocks onto it each time and refining it. Right. So, uh, do you do you take do you have lots of notes? I mean, so it sounds like your outlines are fairly bare bones, but they're what you need to get going. How about just sort of notes of ideas and stuff while you're out and about? Do you write everything down, or do you just rely on, you know, again that inspiration idea? No, I never rely on inspiration. Um, I I do write things down. I love Evernote um, as a program because it syncs to my from my phone to my laptop. So I can, um, if I'm out and about, I can capture it in a place where I can use it later. I still write on bits of paper all over the place. And then I've recently moved to Scrivener. Oh yes. Which I love. So I can have my scenes and my writing in the manuscript and then have a space for my character notes or notes about that scene that I'll maybe come back to, maybe won't. But yeah, there's always just little bits floating around that you're like maybe you'll use it maybe you won't but you don't want to lose it what do you do i i use scrivener as well uh, but obviously mm-hmm. that's a sort of per project thing what do you do with notes for stuff that you're not working on yet you know thing notes for ideas yeah. for books that you might write in the future do those just go into evernote i keep yeah i'll just write stuff up in evernote um i get a notebook a paper notebook, an old fashioned paper and notebook, um, every quarter. And I keep my, you know, weekly to-do list in it. I'll do that. But then I also, it's just a blank journal. So then as I get ideas, I'll just write them all down. And then at the end of the quarter, I'll go through and be like, I did this. This was a good idea. This is not a good idea. And then I'll like do something with it. So you you wait that long before looking back through them. That's I mean, if it's something I'm working on at the moment, like, I'll use it. No, but I mean, even for the new ideas, that's, uh, I think that kind of takes quite a bit of willpower. I I can't, (laughs) because I I, I carry a notebook with me everywhere as well. I, you know, note down every idea I have for stuff I'm working on or stuff that I might work on in the future. But then as soon as I get back to a computer, I transcribe it somewhere, either into a notes app or, yeah, you know, a current project document or something. Um, And while I'm... while I'm transcribing it, I'm sort of rethinking through the notes that I made. And so for me, it's, it's an important part of my process to do that pretty quickly. Right. Uh, if I left something for, yeah, two or three months before coming to transcribe it, I'm not sure <laughs> what state <laughs> it would be in by the time I'd finished. <laughs> well, it's a, I mean, there, I think there's a thing with writers where nothing is more, um, no project is more exciting than the next one you haven't started on yet. Yes. Yeah. Um, so that it keeps me out of trouble that way and keeps me focused on the one that has the looming deadline. Um, but it's a good test too, right? Like, do you know what that means in three months? Is that still interesting to you in three months? Um, yeah, it, it's, a, I, I like it as a test. Um, but I'm working on like a big project in my head now that I'm taking a, doing a ton of research and notes for. So I'll, I'm just jotting those down all over the house. And there's definitely going to be a day soon where I transcribe 
all of that into a typed up document or something into into a massive notes project yeah because yeah, there's like notes and ideas for future stories or what you're working on now um and then there's like i'm researching a massive historical story so um and that's a different animal right but you have a specific project in mind for that as well yes yes i do yeah. so presumably do you do you have a, a project file in scrivener where you keep all those notes I've just started it. Yeah, it's gotten serious right. enough that it's gotten a Scrivener file. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah you say, that's when you know it's serious. Like, right, yeah. okay, it's, it's it's got a file, it's got a folder. Exactly. Um, so, if you if you only recently moved from Word to Scrivener, how has that changed? I mean, not wanting to make this a commercial for Scrivener necessarily, <laughs> but you know, the idea of non-linear working because in Word, obviously, you have to, you don't have to. But yeah. most people using Word are going to be writing in a very linear, start to finish fashion, um, and many people still do that in Scrivener, just taking advantage of the you know the ability to have your notes and research there. Yeah, um, has it changed the way that you write significantly? I don't think it has changed it, but it's helped me do what I want to do, which I love being able to see um, what my scenes are. So this is similar to what you said about the beat sheet, the Save the Cat beat sheet. Yeah. You like having all of those beats there and visible. Yeah. So when I'm working, it'll be titled like kissing scene or like hero and heroine meet or like she's, you know, stealing the pirate ship, whatever is like the big thing happening. So I can see at a glance where I'm at in the story. Um, I can look back and see it's too much time happening between this or that. And then I like to color code them by which point of view the chapter's in. So in romance, um, especially historical romance, like I write, readers really want to see the back and forth between the hero and heroine's point of view. And I can color code them and make sure I'm not doing like six chapters in one character's point of view and we're losing um, the other one for a long stretch of time. So I can look back at it that way and be like, do I need to change the POV this is written in? Do I need to add more? add more scenes in here from the other character's point of view. It's um, it helps me just stay more organized in my thinking. And then if you want to move a scene around, Oh my God. (laughs) It makes it so much easier, doesn't it? Yeah. (laughs) So is that how you, do you write like one little scrivening document uh, per chapter or per scene? I think I write, I think I end up doing, because I don't know how to use this all properly. I think I end up doing like one chapter folder and then like 50 scenes. Right. Well, no, there's, I mean, the beauty of Scrivener is that there is no right way to use it as long as, again, as long as it works for you. you know? Yeah. Um, I, I'm a one Scrivening per chapter person, but then I tend to write fairly short chapters anyway. And my chapters never switch POV okay. in the middle. I'm quite militant about it. If I'm going to switch POV, it's then I'm going, to change, I'm going to start a new chapter. Yeah, yeah. I've gotten cleaner about it as I write in that direction. But you, so you still write start to finish then. You still write linear, even though you've got yeah. all this, uh, you know, your beat sheet visible. Yeah. And then by linear, though, like if I realize I need to go back, I'll do that. Um, if I have an idea for a later, later scene that's just exciting me that morning, I'll just do it. Um, so it's oh, so you will occasionally jump around. Yeah, yeah, but not often. Um, I heard one romance author. She told me she writes the sex scenes first because 
that's where all the like character dynamics and emotion and everything comes out and it helps her understand them and their story and their, their love stories and relationship. And I thought that was so interesting. Um, if only because I actually write all my kissing and love scenes at the end. Um, because you have to get into the mood, right. (laughs) To write those scenes and the circumstances (laughs) have to be particular. Um, you know, I have done it on an airplane with strangers next to me. I can, it's not my ideal. (laughs) Like, (laughs) um, I love when it's a, like, you know what? I've got the evening free. I'm going to have some wine and like crank these out. Um, so those are ones I might save to the end and just have like a really sexy writing day or evening. But, um, I will know having said that is I put a lot of thought work in advance of that into how those scenes are turning points in the plot or turning points in the character's right. emotional development. Cause otherwise it's just gratuitous and it doesn't work in the same way or in the way it needs to. Yeah. It's like somebody like Chris McQuarrie, uh, the screenwriter says about his action scenes is like, you know, every action scene is a conversation, right? Every action scene has to have a point and a reason to be there. It can't just be things exploding and people running around, uh, because that's the most boring thing in the world. Right. It needs goal motivation conflict. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so. Even even though it's it's you know the money shot to use a, a phrase right. um, <laughs> of, of what the what the readers are kind of the thrill that readers are there for or viewers are there for in a movie, but still, what separates the good from the great, right, is having a point to those scenes. Exactly. Exactly. I often say what makes romance sex scenes so great is the hundreds of pages of foreplay and context leading up to it. Oh, so you regard like everything leading up to it is effectively foreplay? In a sense, yeah. Yeah. So when you're, I mean, you obviously, yeah, you work hard, you write a lot every day, you think about this stuff quite deeply, clearly. What do you do to unwind? What do you do to sort of, you know, uh, tune it out? I mean, we never completely tune it out, do we? But what do you do to kind of, yeah, just relaxing, you know, have some normal time um i don't i don't know <laughs> um, <laughs> no um uh it's funny so writing romantic fiction it's like this is ev- how everybody else unwinds and when it's your day job it's like that's not relaxing anymore and then i've made i write reviews of it so now it's really not relaxing anymore <laughs> um so i've taken my number one like chill out um thing to and made it not relaxing Turned and work. It into a job, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um you know I just read more other books. I not a big TV watcher. I really try to be. I try so hard. Um I love reading like biography and history and nonfiction, but again it all becomes fodder for stories for me. So it- Right. As you're reading, you think, oh, this could, I could do something here. I could use this bit there. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Um, And so, I don't know, I love to just go out to dinner and drinks with friends and talk about everybody else's stuff. Um, Oh, right. right. Yeah. So, um, 
So socializing. That's socializing. Interacting with actual yeah. humans instead of pretend <laughs> humans, paper people. <laughs> hey, that's valid and, and valuable. I mean, you know, yeah. if there's one thing writers, you know, writers have a reputation for being shut-ins and let's be honest, you know, there is more than a grain of truth yeah. in that a lot of the time. But, you know, like, I love it. it. What it says to me is like, it's not just a job to me. This is like my life's work. This is like just this, exp- it's just who I am. So mm-hmm. I'm okay with there not being all this line between what I do for fun and relaxation and um, what I do for my day job. Um, but I will say, I recently had one, another one of those months, right? Where just everything goes wrong, catastrophically bad, um, or just, you know, a few shades below catastrophic because I'm still here talking to you. Um, But I had a really, really hard time. And I was like, it was so stressful and upsetting for me. And I didn't even want to drink. So that's how bad it was. (laughs) And I knew there was only one thing I wanted that would make me feel better. And it was to read a romance novel. And a really fluffy, like silly Regency one with like a Duke in it, like all the things. And not one that I had to read for work. Um, not one that mm-hmm. I was going to review, but just an author I know and love. And um, I knew her story would just take me out of myself for a little bit and give me some breathing room. And it worked. It worked. And it reminded me why we put so much work into these stories and why we put so much work into our craft, because it is really hard to get to that, to write fluff, to write fluff that will transport someone that will meet them on their like hardest day and be like, it's okay, baby, I got this. Um, and it's worth it. It's worth the slog. So, um, sometimes there's nothing more relaxing than, a hot bath and a romance novel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I recently I can't remember who it was, uh, but somebody related a story of meeting a doctor or a surgeon or somebody at a dinner party, a writer. This is and saying, oh well, you know, so you've got a real, an important job, you know, a real job that matters to people, not like. Me. <laughs> and the doctor was like, well, what do you think we do to to unwind? Yeah. You know what. Your the work of people like you is what keeps us sane uh, and allows us to do the work we do. And I think, I mean, it's probably an apocryphal story, and I think maybe you know might go a little bit uh, too far. But I think the principle is sound. That yeah, you know, there's a lot of work goes into this, and sometimes it you it's worth remembering that what we do is the escapism mm-hmm. that other people need in order to live their lives. Exactly. I say I write. Um books for women who lean in all day. Oh, that's good. And this is their chance to like lean back and relax. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let, let's end with the, the standard questions. What yes. do you, what do you think you're pretty good at from a craft perspective? I mean, um, I think I'm pretty good at dialogue. I think I'm good at pacing and catchy marketable premises. Um, <laughs> Oh, <laughs> you like writing for women who read? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so what What do you wish you were better at then? Um, writing description. 
Oh, just the scenic description. A scenic description, feeling description. Like, I, I think I could, I would, yes. Writing description of all kinds. <laughs> That's your Faustian bargain. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right. So finally then, what is, uh, give us something that you have read or watched recently where the writing really impressed you and why? So I have recently watched the show Dickinson. Um, oh, that's the Apple Plus show, yeah? It's the Apple Plus show about Emily Dickinson. And I have been so impressed by... So it's a historical woman, a historical story set in a historical time, but it has been rewritten into like our vernacular and it just it's all true and feels so fresh and relevant. Hmm. I have heard good things about that. Yeah, I haven't watched it myself, but it's fantastic. I like only letting myself watch it in small doses um to savor it. So what's good about the writing? Is it the ability to take those that old story and as you say put it in a modern vernacular? And have it work. Put it, it's doing that is an exceptional challenge. You know, it's what Lin Manuel did with Hamilton, right? But it's also finding the eternal, essential truths in these stories that are still so very right now. Um, so I would say that show, and then the romance novel I mentioned that saved my day. Um, don't remember the title, but it was a Tessa Dare novel. In okay. fact, it might have been two of them. So um, <laughs> <laughs> she's written a bunch. So, as have you all in that genre. I know. And you know what? I'm slow. I'm slow in my genre. So, <laughs> I can't even. Two books God. a year and I'm slow. That just scares me. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> me too. All right, Maya, where can people find you online? Uh, the best place to find me online is mayarodale.com. And from there, you can find me on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. And you can also buy all my books, all 20-something of them. And that's the next question. If listeners aren't familiar with your work, what, what one work of yours would you recommend people pick up? Uh, I recommend they start with um, a book at the beginning of the series. So either The Wicked Wallflower or Duchess by Design or Dangerous Books for Girls. Of course. Yes. Which I can recommend because I have read that one. <laughs> <laughs> and those are all first books in series. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So you won't miss anything. Maya, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for taking time to chat with me. And thank you all out there for listening to Writing and Breathing. If you enjoyed the show, why not become a Patreon supporter? Patrons get exclusive access to episodes a week before they're published. So go to patreon.com slash writingandbreathing to make your pledge. If you want to get in touch, go to writingandbreathing.com for links to email and Twitter. And that is also where you'll find all the previous episodes. Writing and Breathing is a 7RQ production and is made in England. Remember to write. Remember to breathe. I'll see you next time.